Let's pray together. For the power of music. For the gift of message out of the depths of despair. For those deserted and lonely places in our lives when we find most powerful your presence in our weakness. Speak to us this day. Allow us to recognize in our own spirits that still small voice calling us, encouraging us, lifting us out of our fear, preparing us for your presence in our lives. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Abundance in a deserted place. Deserted is the translation that is given in the New Revised Standard Version. The Revised Standard Version makes the decision to translate this word lonely place. Deserted sounds like there's not much going on, there's nothing there, but lonely brings a whole different connotation. It's similar to deserted, but it speaks to perhaps what many of us felt during the last 15 months. And yet the broader message, abundance in a lonely, deserted place. Around the edges of this story, encroaching into what many of us have grown up with, hearing the feeding of the 5,000, there are all kinds of contextual details that add a layer of richness and import to the power of this story. For one thing, what lies behind this immediate telling in this same chapter, Jesus in Nazareth has been rejected by the very people who helped grow him up. They're shocked to hear his words and disbelieving in what he's representing. His own people in Nazareth have rejected him. That was at the very beginning of chapter 6. But then moving on, just before this story, we find out that John the Baptist, the one that, that announced Jesus to the world, has just been executed by Herod Antipas, whose palace, one of his palaces, by the way, is literally walking distance from where Jesus and the disciples are in Galilee, next to the sea. The trauma of that event, the rejection in Nazareth, and the disciples returning from what surely had been very hard work in disparate places, means that they are not only exhausted, but perhaps even a little traumatized. It is understandable that Jesus says to them, let's find a deserted place, a lonely place, and try to rest for a while. That's where our story begins. Jesus and the disciples trying to get away from the hustle and bustle and the push of the crowds and the pressures that they were surely feeling. The scene then is 
Jesus and the disciples getting in a boat, moving across the Sea of Galilee, still small enough that people in the neighboring villages and folks along the shore could see where they were going, follow their path, and they began to rush to try to get to him. The deserted place, the lonely place, instead becomes a highly populated place of very needy people. Let's pause for a moment and now find out a little bit more about that crowd. The folks that were encroaching upon Jesus and the disciples and their need, their desperate need for rest and recovery. Let's talk a little more about abundance in a lonely place, specifically related to geology, sociology, psychology, and Christology. And I promise you, we will be out of here no later than 1.30 this afternoon. <laughs> Let's talk for a moment about geology. The geology of Galilee where Jesus was is fascinating and it lends a very important background to what's going on with the people Jesus encounters. That is, Jesus having compassion on these folks that he describes as sheep without a shepherd. They're living in a remarkable area. Geologically, it's a, a place that is the remnants of ancient volcanic activity. There is basalt, dolomite, and sandstone surrounding this area, which means when you move away the rocks from the fields, you have incredibly rich land. The fertility of this land for generations had been passed down from generation to generation so that the relatively poor people that were living there had an abundance of food. This area is one of the few places in the Middle East where you can have tropical fruit and apples growing within walking distance. Apples, some of the best in the Middle East on the Golan Heights, and bananas and mangoes and grapefruit and oranges around the Sea of Galilee. It also, this land, the fertility, the geographic and geologic uh, realities of this space, at 700 feet below sea level, which meant that it was in a way a geographical oddity, but it was adding to this amazing climate that allowed for all these different things to grow. It now was being discovered as the Roman Empire had encroached on Galilee, this simple land of family farms begins to be discovered. It happens in our own day. People with means find areas where the land is cheap and there are great opportunities. Galilee had become discovered. We could call them developers. Jesus called them absentee landlords. Jesus tells a whole score, a host of parables about landlords who didn't live in the area, but they controlled the land. How did they do it? They had bought up or manipulated the people, the population, so that the sociology now of this land, this area, was what had been many family farms that had been passed down through the generations. The people gradually had been manipulated. Land had been bought up. Suddenly, people found themselves owing money or goods to people who didn't live there. Vineyards began to be planted on what previously 
had been just little plots where people fed themselves throughout the year. In this beautiful area, you can have three different crops in one year. But increasingly, the land that had been farmed by people was taken over by vineyards. Now, nothing wrong with vineyards except for the fact that if you're poor, a vineyard does you no good. For one thing, when grapes are planted, they can't be harvested for three to five years. And then once they're harvested, they're not used for food. What are they used for? For wine, which poor people can't afford. In other words, the more we hear of Jesus' storytelling and the parables that, we tell, that he tells, the more we discovered these were people who had been exploited their land had been taken. And the beautiful fertility you see here, now looking out to the Sea of Galilee, I'm standing on the horns of Hattin when I took this picture, and you see the incredible fertility of the land, Mount Arbella in the background, and the Sea of Galilee behind that. Increasingly, the sociology of this land was people moving in from other places and taking over what had been land owned by simple people who now many of them have lost their farms, their land, and their means. Which creates a psychology. There is this terrific book that I recommend to you, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Some of you are familiar with this. It was a classic book during the Civil Rights Movement. Howard Thurman being sort of the the, the, the background force, the calming presence for all the key civil rights leaders in helping them understand the power of love, but more importantly, the psychology that everybody was dealing with, white people and black people. Howard Thurman says there, when exploitation, difficulty, and oppression occurs, there are three responses among the people. The psychology that what affects the mind and the spirit, the soul, is first fear. The fear of what's going to happen next. How next am I going to be tricked and manipulated? And when you're afraid, you often believe pretty much anything. You can easily be deceived. The psychology of people struggling the first response is fear. The second, Howard Thurman says, is deception. You can easily be manipulated, tricked. You believe a lot of different stuff. People already had felt they'd been manipulated and exploited because they believed people were going to give them something when, in fact, they were taking away their land. Fear, deception, and the final, Howard Thurman says, is hate. When you're afraid... When you've been deceived, the only response left is to hate. It is natural, it is understandable, and it must be dealt with redemptively. What Jesus is dealing with in this crowd, people just like you and me, the Bible describes it as 5,000 men, which we know was way larger than that. It was 5,000 men, but there were also women and children. This huge number of people struggling. 
with fear, deception, and hatred. And what happens when you have those things combined, you begin to mistrust each other, even the people that are in the same situation as you. What the Romans and the folks that were coming in from outside were experts at was what the British used to call divide and conquer. They would make some people rewarded by making them managers. Jesus talks in his parables a lot about managers of the land and then workers of the land. In the same crowd, you've got people who've been divided against each other. There's fear, deception, and hate among these people seeking Jesus in a lonely place. And what Jesus does with the crowd is fascinating. First, he's teaching them. But the Christology, that is, words about Jesus, how this takes place now. Jesus looks out on this crowd. He's taught them. They've been together. He's recognizing their hurt and their hate and their fear and all the dynamics that go along with the times that they're living in and the difficulties they're experiencing. And as Jesus teaches, he begins to recognize, as the disciples do, it's getting late. They're in a lonely, deserted place. The disciples say to Jesus, we need to do something. We need to let them go back to their homes so they can get food. They're, they're hungry. And Jesus does something fascinating. He says, you feed them. Take care of them. To which they respond, I'm going to edit, make an editorial here, but this is really what they would have said. Jesus, are you out of your mind? <laughs> there are at least 5,000 people here. We have no money. This would take, a denarius was, was the equivalent of a laborer's day wage. What you earned in a day was a denarius. They say it would take at least 200 days of our wages to pay for enough food to give these people anything to eat. And Jesus says, well, let's think about this. How much do we have? Well, they count it up. We've got five loaves and we've got two fish. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, let's get to work. Now, here's what's fascinating that sometimes gets skipped over. This group of people divided among themselves, not trusting each other and certainly not trusting the land that surrounds them and the people that control them. Jesus divides the crowd. Did you notice this? A hundred times, Jesus divides the crowd into groups of 50. Now, what happens when you're in a group of 50? Well, you can't do a whole lot of talking, but maybe how does, this, how does Jesus orchestrate the way the crowds are situated? We don't know, but we can imagine that as people are eating, they're forced in their little groups to sit with each other, to look at each other, maybe to interact with each other. In those days, of course, if you ate with somebody, you immediately were considered to be family. We talk about this in the Lord's Supper when 
we share the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. We become connected to each other intimately, not just because we're connected to Jesus, but we are connected with one another, whether we like it or not. When Jesus put them in groups of 50 all across that deserted place, it was his way, I believe, of forcing them to sit together, look at each other, maybe listen to each other, and eat together, whether they liked it or not. To really begin to get at their fear, to dissolve that deception that they had felt from each other in the broader society, and to remove the hate that blinded them so understandably. The redemptive nature of this story, the miraculous aspect of what Jesus does is not just the replication of the loaves and the fish, but it's the forcing of people who didn't want to be together to sit together, listen to each other, look at each other, and eat with each other and become reconnected to each other. And we're immediately told after what Albert Schweitzer calls this eschatological feast, which is a fancy word. Eschatology just means the end of something that prepares for the beginning of something else. The eschatological feast that perhaps maybe put an end to all the disparate feelings of distrust and mistrust and began perhaps a new sense of potential and community. It doesn't go away, this, this difficulty of relating to each other. We know that well. And we'll talk next week about the struggles that the early church and the Apostle Paul had with the ongoing wrestling of how do you get together with people you don't understand and really don't particularly like and be church and society. It is an ongoing struggle that the church must continue not only to seek to understand, but seek to redeem, live into, work with, and ask God's help. To make that eschatological feast of the five loaves and the two fish continuing to be replicated in our midst, what Albert Schweitzer and others have realized, of course, in the way Jesus concludes the story is not only are people sitting together and looking at each other and being together, but at the end of the story, these five loaves and two fish become replicated to the point where this eschatological feast has leftovers. There is so much abundance. The people can't even finish it all. How much is left over? Twelve basketfuls. It's not an arbitrary number. It is the story letting us know that in this moment, in this eschatological moment, the kingdom of Israel has been reestablished. The 12 tribes have been recasted and brought together. 12, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, 12 baskets, the abundance in a deserted place, in the midst of loneliness, mistrust, and distrust, it is a miracle. 
that continues now. If we listen carefully, believe fully, and work redemptively with the love of Jesus right here, right now, in this sometimes lonely place. May it be so. Amen.